welcome to the Coaching Uncovered podcast, a podcast where coaches come to talk about coaching. My name is Brent Davis and I'm the host of the podcast and I have gone overseas again. I've got an international coach on the line today. I've got Gavin Grenville-Wood on the line. Thanks for coming in, Gavin. I appreciate your time. No problem, Brent. Happy to be here. Mate, I had it all set up to give you a hard time about the cricket and it hasn't turned out to be that way after you guys fought your way into the game again on day three. Yeah, we managed to, to, to almost snatch defeat from the jaws of victory on day one, but um, I think uh, I think the boys have done well today. So, yeah, onwards and upwards for the remaining uh, couple of days of the first test, eh? Hopefully we come out and, and we um, <laughs> clean up that, that tail again really quickly. You've got a long <laughs> tail there, so we'll, we'll see how it plays out. But, mate, for those that don't know you, can you give us a bit of your background story? Um, yeah, it goes back quite a long way now. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm nearly 50, I'm 50 next year and I, and it's a great time for reflection when you, uh, when you get to such a milestone, but I've been involved in coaching for over 30 years, not necessarily consistently. Um, I left school fairly early for one reason or another. Um, I turned pro became an assistant after two years of having started playing. And my first job um, was in uh, was in the Isle of Man, an island between England, Ireland, Scotland, and Wales. Um, beautiful place, great golf, um, great community. But uh, I ended up working six days a week, you know, 12, 13 hours a day, not much playing. And I didn't last very long because it wasn't great earning £45 a week as an apprentice. <laughs> Um, not much you could live off on that, but there was one particular occasion and my first experience coaching and this, this really hit home, certainly uh, upon reflection, I was given a, a dustbin of golf balls, um, and some five irons and they were, I think they were bladed five irons, steel shafted full size. And I was told, you know, at the ripe old age of 16 and a half to go down by the 16th fairway and across into the local high school where I'd be met by the PE teacher to teach uh, a bunch of 15-year-olds. And it it didn't really compute that this didn't make sense. I'm like, okay, cool, this sounds good. And I was fairly introverted at that point in my life. I was fairly shy, um, hadn't really come out of my shell. And it was the worst experience I've ever had coaching. Uh, that was my first introduction. I had no guidance, no help. Um, there were golf balls going everywhere towards building, real golf balls going towards buildings, other people. I don't know how nobody died. I mean, it was absolute carnage. And, you know, I think that's a metaphor or, or quite indicative, actually, uh, of how junior coaching is um, perceived within the industry, that in, in the terms of the, the, the most junior member of staff is the one that will just go and deal with the kids. You just go and deal with that because I can't be bothered to deal with it. Whereas actually it should be the most experienced that goes and does it because it's the most important part of a child's first interaction with the sport. You know, we're trying to present golf to them as something they can do for a lifetime, you know, not something they can use as a weapon against other kids they don't like, which is, you know, pretty much how that turned out. And the session didn't last very long we brought a halt to it, and uh, he took the kids off, and I was left to pick up all the golf balls without without a clicker. 
and without a wedge. So yeah, thanks for coming. Um, Funny. So Funny game. that was it. Yeah, 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 yeah. That was back in uh, the late eighties, um, and I didn't, uh, I didn't feel that great about the golf industry then at that point. You know, having not been allowed to play a whole lot and, and whatever. So I I left and went to university. And actually, it was during my third year of university when I went and did an exchange program out to the United States. And um, I went to work for the Julian Krinsky School of Golf and Tennis in Philadelphia. <clears throat> and uh, it just, it was a big wow moment for me because they were obviously making an absolute fortune. But it just seemed such a cool way to teach kids. You know, there was a lot of love. There was a lot of professionalism. And, you know, the mornings were spent doing some physical coaching and the afternoons were spent playing. You know, we were effectively chaperones in the afternoon and it was just a uh, a very strong essence of, you know, got to let the kids play. And I think that's really, really important. So I learned that very early in my career. Um, and for a few years at that point, um, I did that back and forth and then came back to the UK. And in 1996, I set up my first golf academy and I fell into that. Um, I didn't know what I wanted to do really because my interaction with the golf industry in the UK was still not very good. And I didn't think that going back into it and having to start again at £45 a week, didn't think that that really was the right career choice for me, especially having qualified at university and, and whatever. But um, I took the, this was really funny because I was, I, I was selling insurance, personal health insurance back in 1995. And I was going into British Rail railway stations trying to tell these uh, government workers that they needed life insurance and health insurance. And it wasn't great. And I ended up, you know, watching TV with most of these guys in railway houses. And I, I, I think back to those days and think, my goodness, I could have gone down that road and, and not pursued my passion. And this job advert came up at this nine-hole golf course in the centre of London, which used to be football playing fields. And the guys um, brought in some uh, some dirt that they got paid to dump, created some mounds and created nine holes, um, built a 45-yard-long driving range from a, a crown green bowling green. You know, so it's 45 yards long. You had RSJs, and I was part of that building crew. We, we built uh, out of scaffolding, we built the, the covered bay area and then we had these rsjs that went up at an angle to 45 yards long so you had rsjs at the back rsjs in the middle and rsjs at the front and so we opened right and um we had to close within five minutes because people were pinging balls and they were hitting these rsjs and bouncing back <laughs> into the hitting bays that again another moment of carnage i didn't know if i attracted that but um that was pretty funny but it was, it was during this moment, once we padded the RSJs and it became a, a fair deal safer, um, this, uh, this, this lady whose son I was teaching came up to me. She said, uh, do, you, um, do you mind teaching three additional friends of Thomas who's coming for his lesson today? And I was like, no, that's no problem. We'll do it. I, might, I said, I might have to charge you a little bit more. She goes, fine, just let me know. So we did the lesson with four kids, and it, it was also like bing for me, massive light bulb. And we played some games, got the kids to compete against each other. They learned a couple of skills. I found that very, again, this was very early in my journey. I had no formal training. I'd done some PGA stuff, and I was back in the PGA. But um, I suddenly realized that 
when the kids asked questions, my responses were retained much deeper by the kids rather than the other way around, which is me telling the kids what to do. And it took me a little while to realize that, but it, it, it helped me very quickly start to build and create environments and cultures whereby kids could learn and, and kids would almost take responsibility for their learning. And again, my, my career has, has been one of uh, creativity and, and self-discovery. And there was no formal kids education, how to teach children, certainly how to coach in those days. And so you had to figure it out for yourself. But uh, as I've got to the point that I'm at in my career right now, I've been able to go back and look at research, look at different pieces of education and actually apply it to what I did back in the first part of my career. And there's there's wonderful synergy, which gave me great confidence in my heart because I, I felt that I was doing the right thing quite early on. And I guess I had to be doing the right thing because I ended up building three academies at different locations that attracted over 400 kids a week coming for instruction. So I was doing something right, and I didn't know what it was. I was just, you know, flying by the seat of my pants, as they say. And I guess when I look back at it, it created a great environment. There was a great competitive structure, which then created a motivation for the kids to learn and to want to get better. So that was it really. And, um, you know, back and forth across the Atlantic, working for different people, doing different things, gaining different experiences, really brought me to work for the Better organization back in 2018. And, um, I mean, here I am today in a position where I just desperately want to help other coaches, but ultimately that feeds into trying to communicate our great game to the masses and, and present golf to children as a phenomenal game that they can play for a lifetime. Um, and I'm still fascinated by the fact that many mid-20-somethings, 30-somethings go back to golf after having played other sports. They don't go back to playing soccer because it's too painful. They go don't go back to playing rugby because that's painful. You know, golf, uh, although I still believe it's one of the most athletic sports out there, if not the most athletic sport, maybe with the exception of swimming. It's it's um, it's fascinating that people revert back to it, and wouldn't it have been great had they learned these uh, the skills that they need in a much earlier point in their lives? So um, yeah, here we are today, Brent. So that was a, a brief synopsis of uh, of how we've got to twenty twenty one. That's a that's a really cool journey, and there's so many things to talk about in that in that conversation there. So, um, but I'm curious about your experience in that golf school setup. So, um, as a, as an Australian, we don't generally have that traditional like they have in the US that golf school type setup, and I'm assuming in the UK then too they probably didn't have that type of setup there. Mm-hmm. Um, how was your experience over there? How did you find that? Well, it was interesting. I had. Um I also worked for the International Junior Golf Academy, and that happened in 2002. I was poached, effectively asked to go over there and work, which was, again, it was a goal of mine to go back <clears throat> with my young family at that point to the States and and, and set up life there. Um, and working for the IJGA was a lot different than working for a summer camp organization, but it was all about the structure, you know. Um, the summer camp organization, it was the same thing every day. We went to a different golf course, uh, we either had Wendy's, McDonald's, or Burger King for lunch, which was fantastic, and <laughs> um, it was just a, a, we just had a lot of fun. 
with the kids and um we tried to teach them something but ultimately it was just it was glorified babysitting but the ijga was a little bit different as well and you know i was given a group of kids to coach along with a colleague and it was pretty hardcore you know every single day we would spend time doing something um from about one o'clock after they'd been to school so we'd have these kids maybe four or five hours a day and it would be a combination of technical input fitness the mental side of the game preparation for tournaments that type of thing but <clears throat> the problem with it was that it was 40 roughly thought forty thousand dollars a year for these kids to attend so only the wealthiest could afford this and so you've got a lot of uh mixed mismatched ability levels in your group so you know some of the kids that were there we had some lpga stars uh pablo larathabal who's um still um quite high up in the european tour rankings we had uh Seve's nephew uh sergio ballesteros there um and then there were a few others uh south american contingent was always pretty strong so look there were some standards of player that were just astronomical um but equally you also had those that had no business being in those groups and mixing it and unfortunately for me it was all about the money and the quality of what was delivered wasn't where it should have been and the the i i mean i took exception to this which is why i didn't last uh very long for them i i spent a year and we parted company quite quickly because I, I just couldn't motivate myself to be part of that organization that didn't do things the right way and it wasn't the coaches that that were at fault it was just the the organization which um didn't take the needs of the individual child to heart um so it was it was a tough one uh, because i thought that working for these guys was my dream and actually it wasn't and what was interesting was that i took my group of kids <laughs> um they were you know 16 17 18 year olds um and we had eight of them and so they all came with me right out of the ijga i got a door i got a job through the back door a local resort on uh, on hilton head island um and i ended up working at this resort in the mornings um and in the afternoon i would have these eight kids come and visit me and i would teach them at the resort where i was based but the, the, the second part of that was that we, we decided to house them as well because they left the IJGA. And so um, my wife and I, we, we rented two houses opposite where we were living and we put four kids in each house and we basically looked after them for a year. Um, we took them to tournaments. We, we made sure they were fed. Uh, they, they went to school. That was the same school they were going to before. And of course, you know, I put them on a program of instruction uh, in the afternoons and, I can happily say that I'm friends with every single one of these guys uh, some almost 20, 25 years later, which is fantastic. And one of these guys has actually turned full circle and now become one of the coaches that I'm educating. Uh, he's based in Seattle. So it's uh, there's some amazing heartwarming stories and things that I love about it. And uh, it was a great learning experience for me with these guys at that point. That's that's a really cool story there, and I think that's awesome. And it, it's, again, we have to understand that when we're coaching kids, the chances of turning those kids into tour players is extremely, extremely slim. But we're essentially turning out players that are going to play this game for their whole life. So mm -hmm. I think we have to be sure that we're building the correct people, yeah, as opposed to the correct golfers. You can't create that tour player unless you create a deep-rooted love for the sport in the first place. 
because let's face it, golf will, will kick you where it hurts, you know, and it gets you down. It gets you so down. You don't ever want to play again. You want to break your clubs. You just, you, you, the, you get these horrible feelings of, of self-loathing. I mean, how we talk to ourselves on the golf course, you wouldn't talk to anybody that way. You really True. wouldn't. And some of the things you want to do, I mean, it, you would be put in jail, basically, for, for doing it to somebody else other than yourself. So, look, you, you have to love it so much that that love will extricate yourself from these pits of doom and despair that you go through playing. So if we don't teach that or instill it within the kids that we coach at an early age, they'll give up. They'll walk off and play other things. These other activities and other things that kid that we perceive kids to be engaged with or involved in are just easy. It's easy for them to migrate to, right? Computer games. We all knock computer games and say, right, well, the invention of the of, of Xbox and PlayStation has taken kids away from our sport. I'm sorry, that's not true. It's just that that's there, right? But we haven't done enough uh, of, a, of a quality job to ensure that these kids' uh, hearts and, and minds and eyes aren't turned in that direction, right? If we create a more engaged child in our sport, they're not going to worry about that. Sure, they might have an Xbox, but they're not going to go and dedicate their lives to Call of Duty, right? They'll, they'll want to play golf because it's active, it's fun, it's competitive, and it challenges them. So there's so much that we need to look at within the golf coaching industry, I think, to, to prevent this high drop-off of kids when they become teenagers. And that's the problem I, ultimately I'm trying to solve now. I think globally, um, the numbers suggest that 70% of kids drop off uh, when they become teenagers. And, and I think that's indicative of the fact that they become, uh, that they, they, they're becoming mini adults at that point. They, they go into secondary school. They're going through puberty. They're, they're being exposed to a new life. And, uh, there's just so much going on. And again, if they don't have a deep rooted relationship with golf, uh, enough of a deep rooted relationship, then they'll drift away. And I think that's the same for the majority of sports, right? If they don't have a, a love affair with the sport they're playing, they'll go and do something else because their heads are turned sufficiently. And there are other things that they worry about and they don't come back to it. Um, so the, these are the, some of the problems I'm trying to solve. And the problems are fixed much earlier on. So, you know, the journey of the primary school, elementary school age kid uh, starts, you know, roughly around about the age of five. That's when we've got to start engaging these kids on a different level in a different way to protect that drop-off when they become teenagers. We could talk for hours on that topic, by the way. Yeah, for sure, and I'm, I'm keen to explore that further on. But I'm curious to a point you made early on. You said that you were doing some stuff. You said you were when you started coaching, you were coaching kids and in a certain way, and now that's been uh, supported by what you've learned now yeah um how did that come about was it just pure instinct that you started coaching yeah. that way or yeah because i saw the results i saw the results very quickly and i started off with a very small group of kids you know my whole career was based around um thomas's mum saying do you mind teaching three of his friends that's basically where my career started and then thinking what can i do with these four kids and you know they they all they all had a bay each, I remember, how we started. And then I felt that because they were separated, there was no interaction between them. So I put two on two, two and two. And then I started creating some competitions, two v two, and trying to get them to, to feed off each other. And I, I very quickly found that competition was the glue that held it all together. Without competition, there's no motivation to learn. There's no motivation to want to get better. 
So I started creating these fun games and just having a real good laugh with these kids. And they were, they were what, eight, eight years old at the time, and they absolutely loved it. And they started becoming infinitely more inquisitive about how to get better at certain skills. And I started inventing games that would require different skills. One of my favorite games was to hit these RSJs in this driving range or to try and bend the ball around them. So if we had the middle bay, it was a 13-bay driving range. So if we had bay six, seven, or eight, then it enabled us to try and bend the ball around the middle RSJ. And it was only 45 yards long, so you weren't going to see much of a bend. And you had to certainly whip a three-iron around the corner for sure. But the kids didn't have three-irons. The most they had was a five-iron. And, um, but we still tried to play these games and, and they absolutely loved it. And, um, we did so many different things, but it, it also migrated then to playing, um, competitions out on the golf course. And every weekend, you know, we would have a block of tea times from seven in the morning. Um, we'd have a block of tea times on Saturday afternoon. We'd have block early on Sunday, block early on Sunday afternoon. And effectively, we had like 100, 150 kids, depending on what time of year it was, um, playing competitions every single weekend. And that was the that was what fed the instructions. So there was no there was no physical program or plan. It was largely reactive to the scores and the problems these kids had. So, you know, we grouped the kids into different abilities, and we created a, a football soccer league. In, in in these different divisions and we had promotion and relegation at the end of each school term so they'd play 10 weeks of a tournament uh, there'd be an order of merit they score points each week and the, the 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 top two would get promoted and then we'd have four kids in a playoff and then we'd have four kids at the bottom of the league uh, of the of the league above would go into a playoff and then we'd have two kids getting relegated and I did away with the relegation because that was just too heavy some of the kids couldn't cope with that which was fine um <laughs> but ultimately the, the the competition drove their thirst for wanting to get better and every kid fell into that category yes they had a different relationship with it but that was the heart of everything that I did and so there was never a program I never sat down at the start of each year and physically wrote out a program that I had to follow that never made sense to me because you you don't know how kids are going to react to certain situations or to things that they do and so having a plan to me would, would be derailed really really quickly um so I, I like to think that from what i saw on the golf course from my own evidence my own eyes from their feedback from looking at the scores from interacting with them week in week out i could address their needs in their different groups that they came to me on a weekly basis with um and we just went from there so i mean it was it was fascinating but you know there was no real science to it other than my own um intuition really and this is what i found now is that what i did back in the early in the late 90s and early 2000s has been supported by current research and, and ed other education that's out there in, in other in other sports and other other coaching um spheres so that was it was good to read that and good to acknowledge that i was kind of doing the right thing at the right time you've um you've, you've kind of hit on a spot there where you said the competition was what the kids enjoyed and they seemed to thrive on it. And you said before that they, they played PlayStation because they can play with their mates and they can um, play competitions against their mates. So they're doing the same thing on the golf course there. So It's instant gratification. That's the world we live in right now. And competition can take on many forms, right? And it's been 
really, it's competition has had bad press over the last 30 years. And we we saw the the invention of participation trophies, which oh, it's one of these hold your head in your hands moments. You know, you you get nothing for participating. You know, um, because ultimately life is a competition. The biggest life skill is that you're going to have to compete against these other twenty kids. You know, if you want to get a job, right? So just toughen up, right? Let, let's let's just go down this road where it's going to be part of what we do on a, on a weekly basis. And competition for me is presented in a, in a whole multitude of different ways. And actually, very infrequently are my competitions focused around there being one winner, right? Because your competitions are ultimately based around each individual's relationship with the acquisition of a skill, right? So you create competition whereby... They're competing against themselves. They're challenging themselves to be better at something. Um, and so there's that firstly. But then there's competition against another child. There's competition as part of a small team against another small team. Or there's competition as part of a team against multiple other teams. But the idea of a team is that the kids around you and your team are part of that motivation that inspires you to want to be better. You know, peer pressure whether we like it or not, plays a huge part in this because if, if these other kids are on your, on your team and want you to be better or at a certain standard, you're going to feel like, okay, right, I need to do better here. I've got to, I've got to help these guys out. I feel bad if I'm the weakest link. So that also feels like um, it, it's an appropriate element of competition. And, of course, none of this – uh, none of these individual elements of competition are going to be exclusive. They're going to be a part of the solution, and you have to have a varied approach to it. Otherwise, you fall into the trap of there ultimately being competition for having a winner at the end of it, and that's not what you want. You want it to motivate and inspire and drive these kids to want to learn and improve their own set of skills. Um, and a coach's skill uh, individually is creating the right sort of competitive environment for the right moment for that type of skill that these kids are trying to acquire. It's just such common sense. It seems to make so much <laughs> common sense, which is really yeah. cool. Um, yeah, I is. certainly enjoy hearing you talk about how you coach and it, it just rings so true for me as well. So, yeah. Um, it's yeah. So talk, talk me through how your programs are set up now. Obviously, they've changed over time and improved, yeah. I'm sure. And uh, yeah. so talk me through how you set up your coaching programs now. Well, I will start my session with with some high octane activity. Let's get the kids running around. We'll get the parents involved in that. We'll get the kids leading the session, taking responsibility, letting them tell their parents what they're doing and why they do certain things. So that's the start of every session really for me. But then we go straight into a little competition or a game or an activity and there'll be no instruction. The The only instruction is really what the rules of the game are. So we'll give them a, a, an activity or a game and we'll just let them go and play. And, um, there, there might be some levels or phases to it or some constraints that I can apply because I want to steer them down a particular direction. But ultimately, um, I will set up this challenge for them to create their own environment and their own, that environment is one of creativity and, and self-discovery. I want them to find the solutions. Now, the cheeky thing is that I'm steering them down a road, right? Um, but making... And making them feel like they're the ones in charge. And if we're talking about, uh, let's say, uh, holding out, 
Right. So six foot putts. I'll I'll basically set the task. Let's say of right. Uh, first one to 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 make five six footers in a row uh, wins. Um, if you miss one, you've got to go back and start again. And I'll just let them go and play. And of course, when you're talking about the skill of holding out, two things have to to come into play here: um, your your speed and your direction. Right. So that will highlight for me as I scan the group um, elements of deficiency. Um, but equally, I will get kids starting to come to me after a period of time. And this is a great skill, by the way, as a coach, the power of silence, not saying a whole lot. You can interact with the kids, but don't start giving them solutions. And um, let me just go off on a, on a junk side junction for a second and say, as, as a parent, as a sports parent, the biggest mistake and the thing that I regret and the one thing I want to take back is um, having constantly provided my kids with the solutions to certain situations too early. And it, and I look back and I just want to, uh, it drives me nuts. I feel really bad about that. But putting going back to the coaching environment, you cannot give these kids the solution too early. Otherwise, they don't learn. You, you forget the cycle that they've got to go through to pick up this new skill. So the power of silence as a coach is, is, is the most powerful aspect of your of your skills as a coach i think because you've got to let these kids go through that full cycle of experience exploration and creativity look let's be honest if if a kid came to me and said i'm done i've got my five in a row but i was using my my putter as a pool cue i'm like that's it i quit i'm done i have completed my mission in life but you know that's not going to happen they're not going to make five in a row using their putter as a pool cue so if they start off using their putter as a pool cue, they will suddenly very quickly realize that's not the easiest way to do things, right? Now, that's a very raw example, of course. But, you know, you've got to create this environment of self-exploration and creativity so that the kids feel like they're in control of their own journey. And um, Dr. James Nottingham is a phenomenal human being. He is responsible for this thing called the Learning Pit. Uh, his company is called Challenging Learning uh, his company really focuses on teachers in the classroom. So I've spent a lot of time studying his work, talking to him, working with him. And he calls the moment when a child achieves as the eureka moment. And eureka in Greek means I've done it. Um, I've achieved it. I've done it all by myself. And that's the sweet spot, Brent. That is absolutely the sweet spot because that comes from the child's heart. That means more to that child that they've achieved than any trophy you ever give a child any bar of chocolate you give a child, any little competition that you feel like the children have won, right? This overrides it. And if over a period of time you create these moments of eureka for these children, that is their heart getting full of love for the sport that they're playing. And that means they'll continue to come back to it because they feel like they're valued. They feel like they're empowered. They feel like they can take anything on because they're the ones that are finding solutions by themselves for the problems that are being posed in front of them. Um, and that's effectively how coaching, I think, has to evolve and effectively change. So when you look at how coaching is generally delivered, and I've seen and, and witnessed this, typically now you'll see a coach stood in front of the kids, preaching at the kids, telling them how to do it. That is not how to coach. That's going in one ear and out the other. It's gone. Because the children haven't had the moments that they need to have, the moments of frustration um, the moments of despair when they feel like they're not progressing or learning a small 
particular skill or something that you've asked them to do. They're not overcoming the challenge. They're at the deepest, the deepest point in the learning pit. Um, if you don't let them experience that, they're never going to come out the other side and feel like they've achieved anything. And it's that self-achievement that is so powerful that we don't or haven't ever given any credit to or even really looked at. And, of course, it can even apply to adults, by the way. Um, so, I mean, that's that's kind of the, the secret source of where we've got to get to as coaches and empowering these kids to take responsibility for what they learn and how they learn it. Completely on the same page as you there. If I could go back 20 years when I first started coaching and just say, shut the hell up, stop talking so much and let the, the student in front of you find the answer themselves yeah. they will get it and it just it again it just makes so much sense so for those young coaches out there just starting out what advice have you got for them to 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 actually stop talking so much because it's a it's a real simple trap to fall into and I've, i'm guilty of it as well talking too much so for those those guys just starting out in that coaching how would you encourage them to essentially shut up <laughs> i mean it's really difficult because you feel like you're not teaching and if you're young, you're going to be overpowered um, and you're going to feel an intrusion by, by, the, by the watching parents. So it's, it, it, it's a minefield. It really is when you're starting out. And uh, you, will, you will naturally, if you don't have the strength of character to overcome this very quickly, you will deviate back to preaching. And that becomes the problem and, and it will be difficult to, to extricate yourself from that. So, you know, I still think that um, the industry needs to do a better job of promoting the fact that teaching children is a viable career choice, right, to young, to young coaches. Um, I'm lucky enough to spend time with um, a couple of educational establishments over here where I'm, I'm teaching 16 to 18 year olds. They're going through an official um, uh, BTEC program of education, a golf program, but coaching is part of it. And again, just letting them know, look, it's not about becoming the tour coach, right? It's, it's not about necessarily becoming a player. Um, you know, teaching children is is a viable career choice. And of course, we have to make sure that the business structure can, can, can support that and is sustainable. But ultimately, you know, they've got to, young coaches have to, to, to fill their minds and their their hearts with with education. They've got to go and seek advice and help. They've got to be shadowed by mentors. They 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 need to be guided along the way because when you're stood there first out and and you you know it's it, it's easy enough to 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 create the physical environment. And I can say to a a young coach, right, do do your warm up activities, have some fun and games, throw some balls around, right, let make it high octane, lots of activity, but then go from that into a challenge. Set up a challenge for the kids to play and then let them play it for 15 minutes and don't say a word. I tell you what, it's the longest 15 minutes ever. It really is because they'll be like, oh, what do I do now? Help. I don't know what to do. This doesn't look right. This is not coaching. This doesn't feel like it's what I should be doing. What are the parents thinking? What are they saying to each other? You know, you'll start second guessing yourself. Um but you know what? If you dive in at the deep end like that as a coach, a young coach, and you, you let that time evolve, suddenly you'll start to see certain things happen. And the magic of a child asking a question, it suddenly comes to light. Wow. Actually, now I'm starting to see some traction with this. And let's not forget, 
when a child asks a question, that child is in the sweet spot of learning. That child has come to you because you're part of that child's network of solutions, right? So the child, you know, you have the child at the heart and around that you've got these little satellites of, of things the child can do to, to overcome the challenge. And you're one of these little satellites, you know, trying and failing is another, you know, talking to other kids is another, watching what other kids are doing is another, um, being creative is another, you know, all these different solutions are available to the kids and you're part of that solution process. But as soon as they come to you, that is your invitation to start coaching that child. It's magic. But the, the sweet spot being that the child is asking you a question because they want to know the answer. They have found that there is a problem that they need to solve and you they know that you have the answer. That's why you're there. They're coming to you. They're not going to their parent first. They're going to you. And that's when you can then help them. And the beauty is that if 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 at that point the kids have, have got together and, you know, we're in a group setting and the kids are asking questions. The, the other kids are listening, right? And they're, they're weaning the advice. They're, they're tapping into what you're talking to, uh, to, to that, about to that one particular child. And again, this, this becomes very child centric because you're, you're responding to that question in the way that that child asked the question. It's becoming very, very, um, focused in terms of your response. It's not a generic response. But the other kids are listening. They'll pick up on it. You know, you're doubling up on their education. And so when another child asks a question, you know, you're going to respond to them in, in that particular way. And this is where your challenge game activity might have a second phase to it. Because once you've got them together, you might say, right, I'm going to throw a constraint in here now. Here's the next part of the challenge. Off you go. Go play. And that then, you know, you're steering them down this journey of acquiring new skills. And you, yeah, they're like putty in your hands then because you've got them. As soon as they understand the process, um, then um, they're, 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 they're engaged in that journey, right? They're, they're, they're starting to love it. They're starting to talk to each other. They're starting to communicate. And, you know, you hear a buzz and that's fantastic. It's, it's beautiful to watch. But unless you, you go through those really hard initial moments of just silence, right? Because there will be silence for five minutes or so. And, and you start to see, you know, the kids will, will, will start to extricate themselves from that and, and things start to evolve. Really cool. Really cool ideas. Now, you've brought this up a few times and you were, you were talking about problems. So for all the junior coaches out there, the, probably the largest problem they will face is the parents. Mm-hmm. So two kind of bits of two questions, two, a two-part question, this one. So what do you see the role of the parent is inside of your coaching programs and how do you handle those parents that think they, they're on top of everything and they know best? Yeah. Oh, it's, um, it's really challenging to change the perception uh or the involvement of the parents when the kids are in their mid-teens. It's really difficult because so much has been cemented. You know, it's very, very difficult to, for a leopard to change their spots at that point. You'll get some that are open. You'll get some that have gone down such a deep, dark rabbit hole, they suddenly realize that what they're doing isn't right and they seek help, but that doesn't happen very often. So from a very early age, we as coaches have to engage with the parents. My biggest fear, Brent, is when kids jump in the car 
and they leave your golf lesson or they leave the academy. And what the parents are saying to the kids conflicts what's been going on in the lesson. And that, at that point, although you wouldn't necessarily know it as the coach, the relationship has broken down. So the outcome of that is that the child will either go and, uh, they'll go and see another coach because there's conflict, or worse still, the child will quit because the conflict becomes too great. So that's what I fear the most. I used to push parents away, um, you know, get out of my face. You don't need to be listening to me because I do not want to be judged. I don't want you to sit there talking amongst yourselves, talking about how rubbish I am as a coach. That's what I felt. Um, and I think a lot of coaches feel that. Um, and actually, that's not what's going on necessarily. But we have to educate these parents. And um, I'm sorry to say that my metaphor for the the, the child-parent-coach relationship is a three-legged bar stool. Now, a, a three-legged bar stool only functions as a three-legged bar stool because all the legs are the same length. If the parent, the child, or the coach's aspirations, let's say, get a little out of whack, one of these legs gets a little bit shorter or longer, that stool no longer functions as a bar stool. It, you can't sit on it. You'll fall off it. That's the metaphor for the child's journey. Right, that journey no longer becomes viable because one part of it is out of whack than the other two parts. And there's going to be conflict. So you need harmony in order for this to work. Right. So you've got to, to, to find creative ways to engage the parents. And bringing the parents in for the first part of the lesson is a great way to do it because that breaks down barriers. You get the kids to lead the warm up session. Right. After a period of time, they can, right? Because you, you've, you've, educated the kids they know you know if you say right today um we're focused on long game we're gonna basically um do some we do lots of running around and we're gonna throw some balls around and you get the kids to then create their own activity or to remember some of the ones we've done previously but to lead the parents in on that journey so that you know the, the parents are playing interacting with the kids, having some fun, and seeing how uh, athletic we need the kids to be, right? Because creating an athlete is hugely important if we want them to become um, healthy adults primarily, but also, you know, good sports men and women uh, in the future. Um, and we know that golf is, is particularly physical anyway, so that has its benefits. So, um, you know, talking to the parents uh, is also a huge part of it, finding time to talk to them as a group in a formal or casual setting, um, you know, taking 30 seconds out during a session just to, to run over to the parents and, and let them know what's going on, right, what they're seeing, what they should be seeing. And in these moments of silence, effectively, when the kids are going through a challenge or going through an activity and you're letting them play, that's a great moment just to, to dip out and just go and have a chat with the parents, let them know what's going on. Uh, and then you've got technology, which can help support that. Um, technology in terms of um, a group space, a community space, whether it's a group on Facebook or whether you've got uh, a WhatsApp group or, or whatever, and you're continually feeding that group with, with information, whether it's articles, whether it's videos, whether it's just your own perspectives, whether it's results from certain things. That could be a whole multitude of different um things that you can post in that group but ultimately 
because you're in constant contact with the parents, then you've broken down these barriers, which means there is communication back and forth and they begin to trust you. And that trust is the thing that breaks down if uh, the parents are starting to say conflicting things to their children. The parent will have the most influential voice on that particular child. You're never going to overcome that as a coach. So you've got to bring them in on the conversation. It, it's got to be um, where you are all, all three of you are on the same page. And when the kids are away practicing, the parents know what it is the kids should be working on, what it is the kids should be doing. They will themselves pick up on how you coach. That kind of laissez-faire approach to overcoming certain challenges will be what they adopt when they take their kids to the driving range. We will constantly um, – one, one thing I love doing is getting different parents caddying for different kids, either in when we go out and play two or three holes or whether it's nine holes or whatever – because it makes them realize that they can't talk to certain kids in a certain way. You know, they've got to behave themselves, right? And, and everybody needs education, but you're just creating that environment for certain outcomes to evolve. Um, and equally, you know, if I'm out there watching the kids as they're playing, it's talking the parents through letting the kids be allowed to fail, right? The kids aren't trying to hit bad shots, but they need to, they need to know what it feels like to hit the ball in the water so that they can figure out what the solution was or what they should have done differently in the first place. And again, constantly reaffirming the fact that the golfer, that sorry, that the the round of golf that the child plays tomorrow doesn't define the golfer that that child will become in ten years' time, right? It has very little bearing on it. It's a it's a it's a minute part of the journey, so it's irrelevant. And not to get so uptight about it, but to embrace it and laugh it off and have a bit of fun with it, you know. So there's a lot to it. Yeah, those I just love those ideas. Just the fact that you're keeping the parents as part of the team, so to speak. You, yeah, you're keeping them informed of what you're doing. I'm doing this because of this reason and this reason. Keeping them informed of what's going on. This is why we're doing it. Getting them in, in, into the program as part of the team. I just think that's that's really powerful. And it, again, if if you're telling them to go off and do something else and doing your own thing, they'll push back when they yeah. when they get yeah. As you said, when the kid gets in the car and the parent asks, okay, tell us about your training session, and he says, oh, we just played games for an hour, um, he's, the, the parent isn't going to understand the reasoning that you did that. They're not. The other thing as well, Brent, is, which is really, really important, okay, unless you have, unless you're, as a coach, you have a really solid, sustainable business model, you're not going to continue to develop the future of our sport. Engaging with the parents is protecting your bank balance. I hate to say it and, it, and it's got to be as black and white as that. But you're not doing this for a charity. You're doing this because you are a professional. You're at the, the top level, right? And you are, you've chosen this as a career to provide for yourself and your family. So if you don't engage with the parents, you are exposing yourself to losing money. And we have to talk about it in those terms because that's often, you know, oh, you can't make money from coaching children. That's bad. You know, you can't do that. I'm sorry. It is. You're going, you've, you've, you've gone through a professional education uh, much as an accountant has or a lawyer has, you know, and arguably they earn infinitely more than golf coaches do, which is what it is. But, you know, we've got to, we've got to understand that as coaches. We have to be business people. 
And part of the solution to building a good business is making sure the parents are on side. And if the parents are engaged in every single week's class that you are delivering, how do you think they're going to feel about signing up for next year? They're going to be on board straight away. They'll be first in line. They, they can't wait to hand over cash. And when it comes to a point where you've got to put your prices up or you change your business model, they'll be like, you know what? This makes sense. You know, I'm getting a lot out of it. My kids are getting a lot out of it. We believe in this. So, I mean, you know, let, let's make sure we paint the right pictures here and, um, and build sustainability um, and protect the future of our sport, you know, and, and the parents are a huge part of that. No, that's awesome. I love that. Um, I'm going to give you free reign to get on your soapbox and have a rant now. So I can't, I've been on my soapbox for the last 25 minutes. What, what do you want me to do? I want, I'm, I'm giving you free reign to completely change junior coaching. So how are we going to set it up to, com- com- to completely change it and get it to the top of the, the tier of, of coaching? How, how can we do that? Okay. I wrote something down with my art, my, my little notebook, my coaching Bible, by the way. Um, okay. Here's the soapbox moment. Uh, having technical knowledge about the golf swing doesn't give you a license to coach. Coaching is a skill that has to be learned. And in some cases it will take years to evolve. That's my view of not not where the entire coaching industry is going, but it's it's a, a little snapshot of, of the dangers that I see in the future. So let me qualify that. Because if you don't have a track man, you are perceived to be a second-rate coach. Unfortunately, I think that coaches feel like they need to have this technology in order to be a great coach. But again, using a track man... And I hate to pick them out because their technology is great. It's phenomenal technology. Um, but using a track man is really just about interpreting data. Now, if you are reverting to using track man for the entirety of your lesson, week in, week out, then you've got some serious problems. That is not coaching, right? Coaching has so many elements to it, much of what we've discussed already to this point. But building relationships with the human being in front of you is arguably the number one skill that we must have as a coach. And you've got to build that trust. And I would, I would recommend coaches pack their technology away for a month um, and teach only with their eyes and with their knowledge and to record some of those sessions and watch them back and watch them back at the start of the month and then watch them back at the end and see how much difference there is. Because I tell you what, There'll be a huge improvement, I reckon. A huge improvement. And you'll see, you'll see the warmth, I think, uh, of the relationship that you have with the students. Um, it'll be less cold, it'll be less factual. Do you know what I mean? Um, you know, if surely as coaches our, our job isn't to zero out your swing path, right? Surely our role as coaches is to make sure that our students are enjoying their golf. Finding creative ways that they can lower their score by one shot. Finding ways that they can hold one more putt around or hit one more fairway. I mean, you know, most of the amateurs that are being taught don't have time to spend hours on the driving range trying to zero out their swing path. It's just never going to happen. 
Um, and yet we, we keep going off down this dark road thinking that that's the way that we've got to um, we've got to evolve. So I guess that's where I'm at with, with, with coaching. There are, there are far more important skills out there that need to be learned um, other than, you know, how to use the technology uh, that's at our fingertips. It's part of it, but it's not the solution. And um, I think one of the best exponents of that for me is is the boss, which is, you know, for me, David Ledbetter, who's the, I hope, he, I hope he won't mind me saying he's the grandfather of golf coaching. You know, so many of the world's top coaches have him to thank, but, you know, he'll use video technology fairly frequently and there's great videos or there's really great evidence of him in the early years with Nick Faldo, you know, looking down the old VHS cameras and, and looking at the playbacks on the, on the driving range back in the mid to late eighties. Um, and he'll use the track man and he'll use force plates and um, K vest and all the other different parts and bits of technology that we've got at our disposal, but it's part of the solution. You will see him teach more with his eyes more with his gut than anything else. Um, so that that's fascinating to watch. And actually, you know, what I love about how he coaches, um, I've seen him coach tour players, whether it's Patrick Reed or Rafa Cabrera-Bello or, or a whole host of the LPGA stars that he coaches. And that's really boring. I hate that. Just bleh. <laughs> but uh, watching him coach the, the, the mid-teen handicappers, you know, the 20 handicappers is fascinating. It's just fascinating watching him turn these guys, you know, 40-yard cuts to um, to relatively straight shots, you know. It's um, it's fascinating to watch that evolve, and he's just got an unbelievable ability to go into his whole library of knowledge in his mind and say the right thing at the right time to that particular student. And that's the, that's the, the, the skill of being a great coach as far as I'm concerned, that relationship that he has, he's in tune with the individual that's in front of him, even if they're in a group. You know, I've seen him do that in a group where he's just able to pinpoint the right thing to say to, to one member of the group at that particular moment. So I guess that's my my ultimate soapbox moment uh, with, with technology. Sorry if I've offended anybody. I really do apologize. No, it's all good. And that experience is so important, as you said, just having that experience and the years and years of time on the on the coaching team to go into when you need to with a client in front of you. So um, speaking of your employer, do you get to spend much time under him or seeing him coach? Or yeah. It, how, how does that work? Yeah, obviously, yeah, we love COVID, right? Um, and that's put a halt to things. But I've, I've been really, really privileged to have spent time with David on the at the breakfast table over texts, watching him coach at Champions Gate, watching him coach here in the UK, um, and just you know, I I watch. I don't I don't interact necessarily. Just watch and soak it in. Um, he's been really helpful um, with advice with my son, um, who's uh, my my eldest recently played his first European Tour event this year. So that's that's been a really cool journey as well. But David's been. Uh, fundamental in affirming um, the stuff that we're working on, um, which has been really cool. So th- there's been a whole lot of interaction with him, um, and I've just been—it's been a real privilege to to kind of learn. And, and I guess maybe the second soapbox moment is that um, you know, at, at 21, 22 years old, you know absolutely nothing about the golf swing, right? And I wish I could have 
just gone through my education um, respectfully and with an open mind earlier in my career, um, not in my early to mid forties, um, because my my I'm, I would have done a better job. Basically, whether my career would have gone down a different road is irrelevant, but I would have done a better job of coaching the people I was coaching earlier in my career if I hadn't been so pig headed. So education is key. Knowledge is key. You know, open your mind, soak it all in. Even if it's something you disagree with, even if it's someone you dislike, they're going to have something that you can learn from. And that's really, really important. I disagree with stack and tilt as a method of swinging the golf club, but I sure as hell agree with the stack element of it. I can't quite get the tilt element, right? But I like the stack element because it makes a little bit of sense to me, but I've learned from it. You know, uh, the, 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 the plain truth or the one plain string, as it used to be called. I get it. I understand it. I don't necessarily agree with it. And I think it's really difficult for every single golfer to be to be pigeonholed in, in, in one particular swing. But you learn from different methods. You know, the A swing, um, Matt Wolf, George Gankus style. I don't think that people have the ability to swing the golf club to that extreme. But I sure as hell get the idea of swinging steep to shallow, which is what the A swing is all about. It's a concept. It's not a. Uh, it's a philosophy. It's a concept. It's not a method. Um, if every golfer swung a little bit steeper to shallow, then um, you know they're probably going to be a little bit better. You know, we're assuming, by the way, that most golfers swing out to win as opposed to into out. But again, as a coach, if you if you just change that by one degree, then you're making an improvement. And there's less uh, there's less extreme in terms of the results. So, yeah, education is key. Soak it up, open yourself to it. Even if it's what you uh, disagree with, you will ultimately learn from it. I like it. I like it a lot, mate. I'm conscious of time because we've um, I've kept you for almost a full hour now already, which is really cool. So I just I can feel a part two coming on. I think I'm gonna have to get you on the podcast again <laughs> next year, and we can dive into some of these topics a bit more more deeply. I think we need a vodcast but, uh, next year because I am definitely coming to Australia to visit. Um, yeah, definitely. I'm supposed to be in South Africa right now. Um, working with working with a team of coaches who are just opening the, their academy. So big shout out to uh, the academy in Paris, just south of Johannesburg, Paris, I think it might be, be pronounced. Um, and I'm lucky enough to be going to India in January to our team in Bangalore, as they've recently set up their academy and working with their coaches, um, not just in terms of their education and their skills, but also the structures and making sure that they have things in place to really grow the game there. So look. Uh, Coming down under is uh, is another one of the missions, and it's a bucket list thing. So yeah, who knows? We might be vodcasting next year. Sandbelt golf and a few beers and um, a podcast recording sounds like a plan. <laughs> Excellent. But there is five questions I like to throw all the guests that come on the podcast. So I might throw those at you quickly. You've you've given the coaches out there so much advice through the through the recording so far already. But if you had one piece of advice for young coaches starting out, what would that be? Uh, embrace education. It is so important, isn't it? To and I, I just really you talking about taking all the different theories and all the different ideas out there and taking out that little piece that works and that little piece that works and combining that into your own coaching. Yeah. It's just so you powerful. What's, yeah, what's interesting actually is um, I, I'm I'm not really uh, in favour of. And we see this a lot with junior coaching, right? I'm not really in favor of delivering somebody else's prescribed program. 
So a lot of other companies produce these programs, these little booklets that you follow, right? So, okay, here's page one. This is what I've got to do on page one, day one, lesson one. Now, it doesn't make any sense to me for a number of reasons, and I think that spe- this speaks to education. We need coaches to be as engaging as possible. We need them to build relationships with the kids that they're coaching. So if you're teaching somebody else's program and it's something else that someone else has written, it's really difficult for you as the coach to own that because it's not yours. So I would far better see coaches create their own program based on Brett, their own environment that they're coaching in, the facilities they've got at their disposal, the, 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 the kids that they actually coach, because all the kids are different. But equally, I think that a coach's DNA, right? what makes a coach tick comes from their heart, how they, how they play the game, that's got to shine through. I think what I mean by that is that um, you will probably see a trend of a type of golfer coming from the kids that I've coached. And that is going to be, they're going to be very athletic. They're going to hit the ball a long way and they're going to be good putters. Now, there might well be problems with their irons in terms of, of, of accuracy, distance control, perhaps. Uh, they might not be so, so great at short game. It's not that we disregard that. It's just that my DNA believed in from a very early time in my career, hit the ball as far as you can. How many people do you see on the drive mains just spanking driver? Because it's the one thing that everybody loves to do. And yet the club they use the most is the putter. They use, they, they practice that the least, right? But actually, you know, let, let's bring a bit of love for the putter because that could be so much fun. And now with the, uh, I guess the, the recent, uh, spike in indoor, uh, crazy golf centers. I mean, you go to London now, right? I went last week with my youngest son. And you've got all these indoor jungle golfs and adventure golfs now sparked up with a bit of alcohol. And I mean, it's, you have a great time. It's, it's fun, but it's putting. Um, putting is becoming sexy. Are we allowed to say that? Um, so, you know, but let, let your own DNA shine through the program that you're coaching. But that can only evolve through education. So you've got to inspire yourself to learn as a coach from an early age. But then through that education, like you just said, you're picking little bits out here and there. Find what works for you. Find what sticks in your heart and create your own DNA that, and, and build it and so that, you know, what comes out of your mouth is, is stuff that you're really passionate about, but you've got all this education in your mind to back up what you're doing. Perfect. I love it. Um, how about for golfers out there? What, what advice for the average player out there? Um, I think it's, to, it's to, to improve areas of your game that you can improve. I uh, I got back into playing golf, and this feels really bad to say, but I, I didn't like playing really for many, many years, and I, I sucked as a result of it. Um, but I got back into it during lockdown, and I know you guys have had multiple lockdowns, as, as have we, but my, my good friend and mentor, Stuart Clayton, uh, did, helped me out immensely online throughout the first lockdown as I got back into playing. And I, I got back into playing because it was the only activity that we could do over here in, in the UK back in May 2020. And I started playing and it was it was awful. You know, literally every time I went out and play, I had a scorecard in my hand and I started out in the low 80s. And then, you know, as the season ended in 2021, I was breaking 70. But that was down to uh, the work I did with Stuart online. 
and I hated my golf swing. I'm quite tall, but my swing was quite flat. Um, and I would swing very much from the inside. And I hated the look of it. My left side would collapse. My right, uh, my right butt cheek would buckle. My right shoulder would, would drop. And I'd have all sorts of different outcomes from um, 100-yard block rights to snap hooks left, you know, just carnage, right? Um, but what Stuart enabled me to focus on was two things, two very simple things that I had control of that, that if I got right, would just bring this massive sp- span of dispersion and bring it down into something that was manageable. So as much as I still don't like the look of, of what my golf swing looks like, I now have something that's really functional based on two things that I know are really simple to achieve. Um, and, you know, to, just to let you know what they are. Firstly, it's a, it's a slightly different setup position in terms of posture, a little bit more upright. And secondly, it's just keeping my chin up. So keeping my chin up at the start of the swing, and keep my chin up as I start my transition. And that's it. And I can feel that, and I can see it. If I look at it on video, I know what I'm looking for. But my goodness, just keeping things that simple, not worrying about the other stuff, right, has has given me another love affair for the game of golf. And I love playing now even more than I've ever done in my whole career because I went away from playing um, when my academy started to take off, and it was really just coaching was my love. Um, but yeah, keeping things simple as a player, understanding your your swing DNA, I think is really important. And if you if you have um, a coach that is really technical with you and that you're really struggling, I, I would just question that. You know, you've got to find some very simple solutions. Understand who you are as a golfer, and try not to be something that you're never going to be. Great stuff there for the players out there. I really like that advice. It's um, really cool. So is there anything that you would change in your journey or career so far? I wouldn't have been so um, obnoxious, pig-headed, uh, condescending, <laughs> all the bad words you could think of early in my career, thinking I knew it all. I, I hate it. Uh, but it's, it's you know, every bad experience I've been through, even what I, the words I've just used, have helped shape me into who I am today. And that can only be a positive thing for me. Um, and I'm also the attitude that I have to continue my journey of learning through formal and informal means, uh, listening to podcasts, different topics on golf, off golf, different things, reading different studies, performing research, learning and understanding other golfers, other people, other coaches, you know, just a whole there's so much out there that you can you can hug and soak up and bring in that's going to help shape you and continue your journey learning. I mean, David's mantra is those that dare to teach must never cease to learn. Um, and it's making me a better person. It's making me a better coach and a better educator every single day that I'm on this planet. So um, you've just got to continue learning. That's the best advice I can give anybody. Yeah, and that, again, that, that makes sense. It's so easy to find that information out there these days because there's now podcasts, there's YouTube videos, there's social media accounts, there's yeah. so much stuff out there. So is there a go-to podcast that you, you tend to tune well, into? What? Um, there, there are so many, right? There's so many out there. There's there's one particularly that, I, that I've started actually listening to regularly and getting stressed about if I miss one. And they release one every Monday. It's called the High Performance Podcast. And um, 
that's hosted by um, Jake Humphrey and Damien Hughes, and it's awesome um, because they 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 bring on people from all sorts of different um, professions, whether they're coaches, sportsmen or women, um, professional people, politicians, all sorts. And again, what I've learned to understand about so much that's out there is that you don't have to agree with what you're listening to in order to learn something. You don't have to agree with a certain point of view or a certain aspect of what they say, or, or even the way they say it. You don't have even to like that person. But to be open-minded enough to appreciate what they're saying and to respect, and that's a big thing nowadays, isn't it? Respect. Respect what they're saying and their own experiences, because you can learn from that. You can learn from every single piece of interaction that you have with people, things, education, or whatever that's that's available to you nowadays. And um, if, we, if we have a closed mindset, you're never going to, better yourself and so having uh this open mindset i think is really really key to your own development yeah i completely agree so gavin where can people find you if they would like to um, continue the conversation the social media handles websites yeah uh, you can find me on instagram which is at gavin gw13 um you can also find me at led better kids which is um our kids coaching business. Um, and yeah, it, again, it's all about education um, and doing whatever we can. I'm always, always willing to, to talk to people, um, to have conversations with them about any topic or anything. If anybody needs any help, I'm, I'm more than willing to, uh, to give, uh, to give my advice. Um, and and even, even if someone just wants to chat, that's good too. No problem with that. Awesome. I will put some links in the show notes to everybody so they can find you and get in touch if they'd like to to continue the chat. And I encourage anyone to um to do that because you've got some great information to share and some great experience. So um, thank you so much for your time tonight and today for you in the morning. Um, I appreciate you coming and having a having a chat to me. I've got my Friday uh, Friday beer in front of me at the oh, moment, you, so mate. I'm nice and relaxed. Um, <laughs> so that, that's all good. And hopefully the cricket turns around back in Australia's favourite. Uh, but we'll see how it plays out. We'll have to well, get you back after the fifth test, maybe. <laughs> we might have to do part two when the Ashes are being played over here in the UK. That's it. That, that might be a good plan. <laughs> Appreciate your time. Um, awesome conversation, and um, we'll certainly get you back on soon. Brent, no, no problem. Thank you so much, and uh, Merry Christmas to you and everybody that's out there.